God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Such beautiful words. The man behind the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, is William Cooper. As you might imagine, a man who wrote words like that lived words like that. Cooper was born in 18th century England, and he faced trials almost immediately. His father died when he was six years old, and several of his siblings died either at an early age or even in childbirth. Cooper grew up in a boarding school, which was a horrible experience for him, spending a couple of his years there as a victim of sexual abuse from an older boy. Cooper battled lifelong depression and despair. Bouts of depression would come upon him suddenly and regularly, and it landed him in an asylum. Now, Cooper's primary doctor at this asylum was a Christian, held out Christ for Cooper constantly. But one day while at the asylum, Cooper happened upon a Bible that was on a bench, and he opened to John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Cooper said this about that experience. He says he saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct, that I almost shed tears upon the relation, little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards me. Well, despair didn't end after Cooper came to Christ in faith, but God provided him a friend that stuck closer than a brother. His name was John Newton, the former slave trader turned pastor in England. You know John Newton from the hymn Amazing Grace. Now, it was Newton that encouraged his new friend Cooper to use his skills of oratory and poetry for hymns. And so we sing another one of Cooper's hymns pretty often, that there is a fountain filled with blood. Now, the friend who inspired Cooper to write God Moves in a Mysterious Way is the one who himself wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow, which we sang earlier also. And the last stanza goes like this, speaking how God uses trials. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. Cooper and Newton tell us that we live in a time when God orchestrates all events in such a way that often seems mysterious to us. Cooper and Newton tell us that we live in such a time that God allows trials and bends them for the good of his people and for his glory. Now, friends, one day our faith will become sight. But until then, the trials our sovereign God allows us to happen force us to trust him every single day. Now, the days in which we live are no different from the days in which the Israelites lived after they went from Egypt. They were delivered from Egypt, yes, already delivered, but they were not yet in the promised land. We're in the same place, but in a greater way. 
delivered from the slavery and guilt of sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who absorbed God's just judgment for our sin on the cross in our place. But now that we're saved, we're still on our way home. You read the New Testament, it uses many images of the wilderness, many images of pilgrimage for the, new, for the Christian life. So last week, we considered how God thought through and provided for the Israel's time after Egypt. That he's faithful, he gets glory in every step of their journey, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Well, this week we get to see that in action. And as we start to see that action of God's faithfulness, it comes in a surprising way. It comes in a way that we wouldn't design ourselves. He works through trials. Right after they get out of Egypt, Israel faced trial after trial after trial after trial, literally five in a row. So for the rest of our time, we'll look at how God moved in the trials that he allowed to come Israel's way as they were heading out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And we'll see also how God moves in trials in our lives. So if we can summarize this perspective that this passage commends to us, we can say this. Maintain hope in trials, knowing that they aren't purposeless and don't happen outside the control of a good God. Maintain hope in trials, knowing that they aren't purposeless and don't happen outside the control of a good God. Now, so far in our study in Exodus, we've covered, we've covered the book in larger chunks. So some weeks we've read a little bit of the passage, other weeks we've read more of it. This week we will read the vast, vast majority of it, but for the sake of time, we might skip bits and pieces of it, and I may summarize it to you. So let's begin, though, in chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 22. Looking at a Bible that looks like this, it's red, it's a P-rack in front of you, you find it on page 57. Chapter 15, verse 22. So you're turning there. Here we'll see the first way God moves in trials. We say, in trials, God tests us. In trials, God tests us. Exodus 15, beginning at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. In trials, God tests us. Well, like all eight-year-old boys, I enjoyed outdoor adventures. And these outdoor adventures that I enjoyed the most involved gooey and slimy creatures. 
So a lot of these adventures took place here on the grounds of Old Oak Bible Church as I would roam the fields in the back. And so I would happen upon just a large static object, like a big rock. And you're just looking at a big rock, there's nothing exciting about it. It's, it's a rock. We see rocks all the time. But if you do something special, if you take that rock and with all your might you lift it over, you uncover a hidden world that fills your imagination, <laughs> full of worms and potato bugs and centipedes. And if you're like me, you take those and you stuff them in your pockets for your mom to discover later. <laughs> Friends, trials work in a similar way. God uses them to prove our faith. God uses them to uncover what's there. So we've been rescued from sin. We've been rescued from its guilt and its power, but sin still dwells in us. And it dwells in creases and crevices and corners of our hearts that remain hidden unless they are uncovered. Kind of like a rock covers up the worms. So God uses trials in our life to uncover what's actually in our hearts that we wouldn't be able to see in times of prosperity. So it might be a trivial example, but this is the one I thought of. It's one thing to listen to Christian music in the car when the sun is shining and there's no traffic. It's another thing to maintain your composure when someone cuts you off in heavy traffic. (laughs) The trial reveals the faith. Trials reveal what's there. Verse 24 of Exodus 15 says God tested Israel. He allowed them to go three days with no water to see if they would listen, trust, and follow him. Now, before we put Israel on the hot seat here, we have to say that this is a legitimately hard trial. Who among us has gone three days without water? Who among us has gone three days without water in a wilderness? So this is a legitimately hard trial. You know, most people say that if something like this happened in the United States, if there was this sudden shortage of essentials, that it would only take a matter of days for chaos to ensue. Looting everywhere. All structures of society crumble. Just a matter of days. So this is a legitimate test. But of all the things God allows them to be tested with, of all the things, it's water. Now just think, if there was anything that Israel should have known that God could handle, anything, it was water. (laughs) Consider what they just saw, two giant walls of water. Three days ago. So God tested Israel's trust in him. A hard test, but one that they could grasp. Do we realize that God testing us through trials is for our good? He already knows what's in our hearts. He he doesn't use tests to discover. He knows. No, he uses tests so that we would see what's in our hearts. So think of it this way. We're not upset for doctors using x-rays or different tests. 
when they discover something that's wrong inside of us. We're not upset at the doctor for that. No, we're actually thankful that the doctor has such capabilities so that we know what's wrong with us. So when we think of sin more as a disease, we won't blame God for exposing it to us. We'll actually be thankful to God when he exposes it to us. But God tests Israel in more ways just to prove what's there. He does something else. What was the desired outcome for God testing his people? It wasn't just to show them what was there. It was to produce obedience in them. So for us, God doesn't only allow trials to prove what's there. He also allows trials to improve what is there. And we know this just from common everyday life. Whether it's studying a subject, learning music, playing a sport, the only way you will improve is if you expose yourself to challenging things. You got to make practice hard. So, we can go to several places in the Bible that explain how God uses trials to improve our faith. One of them is James chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, here's a key phrase, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, how is God testing you? What trials do you face right now? What's the thing that worries you that you can't get off of your mind, either in the breaks of the day or just all the time that you can't get off of your mind? Maybe it's loneliness a bad relationship, a hard job, a struggle with sin, a lack of resources, loss, pain. The challenge for us in light of this point is not just to pray that God would take us out of these trials, although sometimes that is a good and legitimate prayer to pray. But we need to pray for more than that. We need to pray that God would use those trials in us to improve our faith and to remove sin from our hearts. So we'll continue in the series of trials Israel faced after Egypt as we head into chapter 16. So we'll see in the second point, in trials, God provides for us. In trials, God provides for us. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 16. They set out from Elam And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. There's a word that appears in this section that appeared also in the previous section. Grumble. Grumble. Notice Israel's grumbling at the beginning of the chapter. Israel noticed what was wrong with their situation, and they concluded that if it was up to them, they could do a better job handling it. That's the heart of grumbling. We should say a few things about grumbling here. We should say That when we grumble, it's often because we aren't viewing our circumstances rightly or honestly. Consider for the Israelites here. Israel claimed that they would have been better off dead in Egypt. Sometimes in our grumbling, all we have to do is just repeat it, but repeat it slowly. Just to see that it does not make any sense. Israel would have been better off dead. Of course they wouldn't have been better off because if they were dead, then they would be dead. How quickly had they forgotten? Here they cry out in the wilderness, but they had forgotten how they had recently cried out about being in slavery in Egypt. So friends, this is a warning. This shows us that our circumstances can change for the better. And we still don't trust God. So our prayer should be, before that we pray for our circumstances to change, we should pray that we would trust God regardless of our circumstances. Because our circumstances can get better and we still don't trust God. We should say something else about grumbling, though. So when we grumble, we view our circumstances wrongly. That's often the case. But when we grumble, we always view God wrongly. Always. So the beginning of the chapter says Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But Moses points out in verse 8 that their grumbling was not ultimately against him. It was against the Lord. So we just think through the logic of this. If nothing happens outside of the Lord's control, not a sparrow falls to the ground, as Jesus says. And if God is always good to those in Christ, withholds no good thing, no longer under his judgment, but have him as our Father, then by grumbling, what we do is deny that God is involved, and what we do is deny that God is good in a situation. What are you grumbling about? Do you grumble about your boss? 
you grumble about your kids, your spouse? Do you grumble about politics? Do you grumble about other people who grumble? <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> Grumbling is by its very nature self-deceptive. Because when we grumble, we are convinced that we are right and we are the victims and everyone else is wrong and guilty. So then, friends, here's a challenge. Maybe over the next week, notice every time you complain or grumble. You might be surprised at how much you do it, how much all of us do it. Now, we can nuance this some. We're not saying that we can never be wronged. We're not saying that we're not allowed to feel the effects of bad things that happen. And we're not saying that we should never seek restitution. We are saying, though, that we can always control how we respond when tough situations come our way. Always. Instead of responding by grumbling, respond by trusting. Trusting that this is not outside the control of a good God, of a God that is always good. Friends, I know that is a tall task. But God has not left us alone in that call. And further, think of the witness that would be of responding by trusting instead of grumbling. And we all know how contagious grumbling and complaining can be. I mean, sometimes it's a case that in a group of people, if one person complains or grumbles, it kind of gives permission to the entire group to join in. And the floodgates open. But think of the witness of instead of grumbling in those kinds of situations, of trusting, being grateful, having a steady joy, and the contagious effect that that might have. Well, despite their grumbling, God provided for their lack of food. He sent manna, which literally means, what is it? Now, I maintain that if God sent manna today, that it would be in the form of Totino's pepperoni pizza rolls. <laughs> but those do not fall from heaven. I have an idea for the new heavens and the new earth. We'll see if God listens. <laughs> we get a brief description of manna in verse 31. It says it's like wafers with honey. So you might know the Bible around this section. And that are repeated descriptions of the promised land. What Israel is told that the promised land is like. They're told it's a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. So manna was a preview of the promised land until they got there. They ate it all those 40 years until they got to the land. It's not unlike the Lord's Supper a preview of the feast to come, which we do until Jesus returns. So beyond seeing what God provided, we also see how God provided it. God set up this manna delivery system in such a way that it forced Israel to depend on him every day. They couldn't hoard it or else it would spoil. They couldn't gather it on the Sabbath, so they gathered twice as much. Daily dependence on the Lord. That's the principle here. So we think for ourselves, what is a higher virtue in our mind? Financial and material independence or daily dependence on the Lord? 
our culture holds up the former over the latter. Now, it's not saying, it's, this is not to say that planning as far as financially uh, is a bad thing to do. Exactly, the Bible commends that. But it is to say that we can hoard so much that it communicates we are afraid of depending on God. But our dependence on and trust in the Lord extend beyond financial matters. It goes to our general way of life. He's talking about gathering on the Sabbath. To ask us this, do we trust God enough to stop being busy? Do we trust God enough to stop being busy? Why did people still go out and gather on the Sabbath day? Isn't it ultimately because they didn't believe God would provide for them the next day? They didn't believe that God would give them enough, so they decided to work instead? So friends, yes, work hard, work excellently, but show your trust in God by resting and by sleeping. God uses trials to force us to depend on him. And it might be that we are so scared of trials because we would rather depend on ourselves than on the Lord. One more quick note on this point of God providing in trials. We said that Jesus taught the same thing that Israel was taught here. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily dependence on God. When Jesus didn't just teach this, Jesus is the one who lived this, who entrusted himself to the one who judges judge justly, as Peter puts it. Jesus is the one who died so that we'd be forgiven of all the times we failed to trust God. And Jesus is the one who rose again so that we'd have power to trust God instead of grumble. But Jesus spoke more than about the need for our daily bread. Now, referring to the manna, Jesus spoke also of the bread that comes down from heaven. And he said that the ultimate bread that comes down from heaven is himself. You see, manna would meet Israel's physical needs. But Jesus is the one who meets our eternal needs. Bread will not save you from dying. If you're here, you're not a Christian. You should know that there is nothing on earth that death will not rob you of. But however, death will not rob you of Jesus. Jesus removes the sting of death because he overcame it. What we need most is the food of Jesus himself, who gave himself for us on the cross. In trials, God provides. How does God move in trials? Point three, in trials, God is gracious. Let's pick up in chapter 17. We'll read the first seven verses. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? 
They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever been in a conversation? You're talking and you don't hear what the person says. So you ask her to repeat herself. And then you still don't hear what she says. And so instead of asking again, you just pretend like it was a yes or no question and you just kind of nod your head. (laughs) It's like here in chapter 17, Israel still didn't hear. It's the same exact situation, the same exact response. And it even gets worse. This time, it's not just that they grumbled. It says that Israel tested the Lord. The language of testing here is the language of the courtroom. So Israel was putting God on trial, pressing charges against him. By testing God, Israel withheld their trust of the Lord until he gave them enough evidence that he is trustworthy. By testing God, Israel wanted to force God to prove himself. By testing God, Israel says, if God gets us out of this mess, then we will trust him. What do we say about this? Well, first of all, we say we are guilty of the same thing. And secondly, we say we have to notice the arrogance of created, limited beings testing their infinitely wise creator. But thirdly, we have to tell ourselves that we cannot dismiss the evidence that God has given to us. Think of all the evidence of God's trustworthiness and of God's love for us, just for ourselves. There's the evidence of our past. You approach a new situation, do not dismiss the evidence of all that God has gotten you through this far. You approach a hard situation, do not dismiss the evidence of the people around you. So maybe, yes, you face a situation that you've never faced before. But if you are deeply folded into the lives of other Christians, which is the importance of being in a local church, you can go to your brother, your sister, who perhaps has faced that trial, which you have never faced, and they can testify of the evidence of God's faithfulness in that trial in a way that you can't. Putting God to the test. You don't dismiss the evidence. What's the biggest piece of evidence of God's trustworthiness and love? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where is there more reliable evidence that God loves us than the cross of his son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There are plenty of things about the future that we don't know for certain. We don't have a complete knowledge of what lies ahead. But 
it is still possible to act on faith without complete knowledge. We do this all the time. Now, I'm no electrician. But every time I flip on a light switch, I expect a light to turn on. I don't know how it all works. I don't have a complete knowledge of all the wires and how it all connects. I'm not Thomas Edison. But I've done it so many times. There is enough evidence for me that I don't even think about when I flip on a light switch. Of course it's going to work. It's been proven to me over and over again. So, we don't need a complete knowledge of all that lies ahead in the future. Because we have more than enough evidence that God will remain gracious to us in the future. Perhaps you need to consider that evidence for the first time today. And there's evidence here in Exodus chapter 17 of God's graciousness. So when Israel arrogantly and wrongly tested God after he had proved himself over and over again, even in the same situation, what did God tell Moses to do? Strike the rock. Now again, this is like a courtroom scene. Moses standing in between Israel and God who stood on the rock at Horeb. And we read in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that that rock was Christ. So we think of Jesus put on trial by sinful men. Sinful men trying sinless Jesus. The arrogance of that. And what happened? Were we struck? No. Christ was struck, not us. And when Christ was struck, Living waters flowed from him that forgives our sins and heals us. In trials, God is gracious. Point four, in trials, God stands for us. In trials, God stands for us. Go on in chapter 17, starting at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told them and and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is another trial. This trial came in the form of an unprovoked attack. And so here we get a preview of how God would fight for Israel as he led them to their inheritance. Israel constantly needed God's protection. They're at a crossroads between many different nations, constantly under military threat. Today, for God's new covenant people, having delivered us from our sins, 
He is leading us home, the true promised land, and he still stands for us against our enemies. But the people of God are no longer a geopolitical entity. We are a spiritual people composed of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is why we as Christians are called to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies, because the truest enemies we face on our journey home are not primarily physical. Our truest enemies are spiritual. Read about this in Ephesians 6. Many of you probably are familiar It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and stand in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Jesus calls us to follow him as we are sojourners in the wilderness of earth. Anything that keeps us from following the Lord is our spiritual enemy. Anything that would keep us from following the Lord is our spiritual enemy. Anything that weakens our trust in Christ is our enemy. Anything that tightens your grip on sin is your enemy. Anything that makes Christ less sweet to you is your enemy. Anything that promises you ultimate satisfaction if you give yourself to it is your enemy. So what are the enemies that affect you? Satan is crafty. He will use even good things to keep us from the Lord and make the Lord less sweet. Well, praise God, friends, that while we were enemies against him, Christ died for us. And praise God, friends, that in the face of our enemies, he still fights for us. He has given us his spirit to protect us, to increase our love for him, to remove sin from our hearts, to make us more like his son. He has given us his people, just like he gave Israel, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. God doesn't mean for us to follow him alone. He means for us to do it among a group of people who encourage us as we encourage them. In trials, God fights for us. One last point. See it in Exodus 18. In trials, God gives wisdom. In trials, God gives wisdom. We're going to pick up chapter 18 and verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. 
Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear, bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go their place in peace. So Moses listened to the, fa- to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he has said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Chapter 18 began with a family reunion of sorts. Moses met his father-in-law, Jethro, and his wife and two kids. He named his son based on the journey Moses got, God had brought Moses through. So in Jethro, in this figure, we see the fulfillment of the purpose of the Exodus that God said way back in chapter 9, verse 16, that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So here, Jethro, a foreigner, came to believe in the one true God after hearing about the salvation of his people. That's not just a fulfillment, it's a preview. Because Jethro then ate a feast with Moses and Aaron. Jews and Gentiles eating a feast. It's a preview of the great feast to come in heaven around the throne of the Lamb composed of people from every nation. In the rest of chapter 18, Moses meets a problem many of us probably met this week. Being overstretched, overcommitted, and overwhelmed. What does God provide for us in this trial? In an irony of ironies, God provides wisdom from an in-law. Friends, do you regularly seek counsel from the people God has placed in your life, especially the Christians God has placed in your life, or do you pretty much fly solo? This isn't to say that we have to seek counsel on every decision that we make, such as what socks to wear that day, but there are plenty of decisions that we should seek counsel from the people of God about. God's placed us in our our lives for a reason, whether that's moving That's taking a job, relationships, marriage, big purchases, conflicts. Just imagine how much strife we would avoid if we sought counsel on the front end of those decisions instead of afterwards. The book of Proverbs is full of this exhortation to seek wise counsel. Chapter 19, verse 20 of Proverbs says, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Pretty straightforward. If you think of the results of what happened in this chapter with Moses, 
He was humble enough to know his limitations, to receive counsel, and then to delegate. That showed his trust in God, and it blessed him, and it blessed the people around him. We need to trust God enough to seek wisdom from him. And he often gives that wisdom to the people around us who are steeped in his word. So Israel is about to reach Mount Sinai. That's where God promised he would lead them back in chapter 3, verse 12. And on their journey, they were to trust the God who saved them to sustain them. And we do the same. We depend on our God every day, even during trials. And it's during trials that God shows us his goodness, his strength, and draws us closer to him. So what we're going to do in a moment in the Lord's Supper, we're about to partake. We proclaim a message until God brings us home. That message is that God provided his son, the bread of life, to save us. And we proclaim also that the Jesus who saved us is the Jesus who will sustain us and bring us home. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful. And God, we are humbled because we're so much like Israel. We are grumblers, complainers, slow to trust you, quick to forget you. But God, also we say, we need you. We need you for every single step of our lives. We need you to save us, and we need you to carry us. And God, we thank you that you are good to keep your promises, and that we can wholly rest on you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.